Hello, and welcome to the 19th Amendment Speaker Series Podcast, an audio rebroadcast of the Speaker Series presented by the National Association of Women Judges, the Women Lawyers Association of Los Angeles, and the Los Angeles County Bar Association in the summer and fall of 2020. My name is Jennifer Leland, and I am honored to share the powerful conversations between successful, inspirational, and impactful women in entertainment, sports, politics, law, academia, and business. We hope you'll enjoy these great conversations and share them with others. We note that these interviews were recorded before Kamala Harris became the Democratic Vice Presidential nominee and Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg passed away. These historical moments would have played a large part in our conversations. Justice Ginsburg's influence on women in the legal profession cannot be understated. In her memory, we share these conversations and pave the way for continued dialogue in service of a more equitable future. Welcome everyone today, including Senator Hannah Beth Jackson, and she is joining Honorable Serena Murillo and I today in recognition of the 100th anniversary of the passage of the 19th Amendment, which conferred a woman's right to vote. The Los Angeles County Bar Association, the National Association of Women Judges, and Women Lawyers Association of Los Angeles have put together a speaker series comprising interviews of successful, powerful, inspiring women in politics, law, entertainment, sports, corporate boardrooms, and more. Judge Murillo and I, and I'm Judge Samantha Jessner, also of the Los Angeles Superior Court, can't think of a better person to kick off the series than our guest today, who is, as I said before, Senator Hannah Beth Jackson. Senator Jackson represents the 19th Senate District in California, which includes all of Santa Barbara County and a portion of Ventura County. Uh, Senator Jackson has served in the California Senate since 2012. From 1998 to 2004, she represented the 35th Assembly District in the California State Assembly. She has served on too many committees to list uh, during for our time that we have together today throughout her two tenures in the legislature and currently is the chair of the Senate Judiciary Committee. She has also served as chair of the California Legislative Women's Caucus. During her time in the legislature, she's been a tireless advocate for protecting the rights and privacy of Californians, protecting the environment, advancing legislation to reduce gun violence, championing equality for women, improving access to childhood education, and more. Senator Jackson has played a pivotal role in authoring legislation strengthening California's equal pay law and legislation requiring more women on corporate boards, among other legislation. As a result of her work on these issues, the Huffington Post included Senator Jackson in its list of the 11 Women Blazing Trails in American Politics. In 2011, she received the Faye Stender Award from the California Women Lawyers Association, which recognizes women who are committed to the representation of women and disadvantaged groups, and whose courage, zest for life, and demonstrated ability to affect change makes her a role model for women attorneys. 
Senator Jackson began her career in the law as a deputy district attorney in the Santa Barbara County District Attorney's Office. She then practiced law in a private firm. She has been described as passionate, tenacious, aggressive, and a fighter. Judge Mario and I are delighted to have the opportunity today to interview Senator Jackson as she concludes her tenure in the legislature. Welcome, Senator Jackson, and thank you for this opportunity. Thank you so much. I really appreciate the chance to be with you and then to chat with other folks and uh, share whatever issues and inspiration I can provide to this uh, extraordinary profession in which we find ourselves. Well, we are going to start in what we hope is a somewhat freewheeling conversation about women, politics, elections, personally about you, etc. So I'm going to start with the following. What power or influence, if any, do women bring to elections? Well, of course, we are 52% of the population, and we are a major voting bloc when we vote on issues that are important to us, whether they're issues important to us personally, things like uh, being free from harassment in the workforce so that we have the opportunity uh, to do our best and be successful, uh, whether it's protecting our loved ones or just our general community in the areas of domestic violence and sexual violence, uh, whether it's making sure that we have opportunities to be successful, like things like Title IX and uh, being treated with respect and equal opportunity uh, in our schools and certainly uh, have the opportunity as uh, women to choose whether we want to have families and with whom uh, and when and how we go about uh, trying to balance all of those challenges and continue to be professional women which everyone in this group uh, aspires to and continues to do, how do we manage it all? Uh, those are things that we bring to the table and we can vote on that basis as well. And we should be voting uh, in areas uh, that are of particular interest to us and our life experience. So uh, we have a very strong voice. We do influence elections, uh, voting on issues that are called sometimes women's issues, things like childcare, again, gun violence, issues dealing with peace and collaboration in our relationships, uh, making sure that our children are well-educated. These are areas where women really do tend to have very strong feelings and fairly united in those feelings as well. So here's a somewhat related question. When you think about when you go to the ballot, you are often voting for a person more often than you are voting for an issue. So what would you say to a woman who feels that her vote doesn't matter or doesn't affect change? Well, I think that that, that would be a horrible mistake. You know, our vote is our voice and our voice is in our vote. And in a democracy, that's the way it's supposed to work. Uh, it, it allows us to participate in the process. When we gather those voices together, our votes are significant. I actually was in an election in 2008, the only election I've ever lost. I ran for the state Senate in a district which had been pretty well gerrymandered to be a lot more uh, right than I am. Uh, I lost, there were 414,000 people who voted and I lost by 852 votes. 
So every one of those votes truly did count and does count. So having that voice is critically important. Getting involved in the process, if not just in one's vote, but working for a candidate that uh, inspires you, uh, letting your friends know, uh, participating by giving money, by giving your time. Uh, there are lots of things that we can do as long as we recognize that in a democracy, if we don't vote, then we're going to be subject to, to issues and to approaches and policies that we don't support. All right, Senator Jackson, I'd like to chime in and ask you a couple questions, not so much about the women who vote, but about you as a legislator. And what do you think it is? What does a woman legislator bring to state or local government or even the bench? Well, what we bring is our life experience, and we do have different life experiences than our male counterparts in many instances, just growing up as a girl. What does that mean? Uh, I can't you know, remember the number of times I got patted on the head and told, well, that's very nice, but you know, girls play with dolls. I was a baseball player. I love sports. I still love them. I love the competition. Uh, I love the opportunity to, to go out there and do my best and have to take uh, the res responsibility for the results. If I win, I'm very happy. If I don't win, I can't blame anybody else. So, uh, but, but for girls growing up, you know, we have been historically subject to all of these expectations that for many of us just don't jive with who we are. So it's it's very important, I think, that we recognize that we do bring to the table uh, different sensibilities, uh, different experience, different expectations. You know, we are the caregivers, for example. I mentioned childcare a little bit earlier. You know, we care for our children. We care for our parents. Many of us live in sort of a sandwich generation and have for decades where we're expected to take care of our children. And then as our parents age, we're also expected to take care of them as well. So we bring that experience, the challenges associated with doing all those things, with being all things to all people. Women still do 75% of the housework, even in an intact family where both parties are working full-time. We still do most of that work. So we bring that experience to the table. And women also, by the way, we do have qualities and characteristics that are not exclusive to us. But uh, for example, women, according to uh, Doris Kearns Goodwin, to whom I asked this question very specifically, you know, she's done the biographies, great biographies on our presidents, all of whom, of course, have been men. I asked her very directly, what is the difference that you see in the difference in leadership between men and women? And she said, without hesitating, women are far more collaborative and women have greater emotional intelligence. And I think when you think about it and you think your experience sitting in a meeting with your uh, brother and sister judges or being attorneys or legislators, we do have those qualities um, and can identify areas where our male colleagues are just off the rails because we see it a little bit differently. And so I think it's uh, it's something we do bring to the table. I tell people all the time, we, we hold up at least half the sky. And um, if you don't have a seat at the table, you're usually on the menu. So uh, <laughs> it's important that we are at that table. We are a part of that decision-making process. We do ask those questions. We do make those suggestions. And as often happens, we're sort of talked over but you have to bang your fist down on your desk and you say, excuse me, I was talking. Now, that won't win you a lot of friends. They'll call you names because women who are assertive are you know what, and men who are assertive are tough and strong. And we still do operate on those different standards, but we know who we are. And I think that's what's important. 
So along those lines, then, Senator Jackson, I have this takes a little lead in, but obviously the courts, politics, even voting, women didn't have those rights and neither did people of color. So as laws were forming, especially in the judiciary, many of the doctrines were formed at a time when women and people of color couldn't even speak to some of those doctrines that were being formed. Now that they have that right to vote, though, a little bit different of a question is, are their voices being heard? I know that you as a former competitive tennis player appreciate women athletes, as do I. And I don't know if you've had an opportunity to review uh, the commencement speech offered by Abby Wambach, U.S. Women's National Soccer Player, to Barnard College a few years ago. But she likened the absence of women's voices in all of those arenas to a scenario that happened in Yellowstone National Park, where Think bad things were happening in the park, and they figured out it was because the wolves had been overhunted. And once they reintroduced the wolves, suddenly the park, you know, the flora and the fauna and everything started to flourish again. And she likens that to the voices of women missing in many of these arenas and what could be gained by having their voices heard. However, she also brings in the fairy tale of Little Red Riding Hood uh, and many fairy tales that from a small age, as you mentioned, you talked about playing with dolls and, and that, in fact, you wanted to play, I think, Little League and baseball. And in the fairy tale of Little Red Riding Hood, she says the message is to little girls, don't be curious, don't make trouble, don't say too much or bad things will happen. So in addition to being at the table, I want to ask you about you using your voice. You've been described as being somebody who is passionate, who works hard for people who is tenacious, but quote, not winning any congeniality awards in Sacramento. And I I wanted to know, were you ever worried about using your voice and bad things happening? Because I know for many women in all aspects of our jobs, even though we're at the table, there is a great, uh, a lot of intimidation that can happen about being talked over, excluded, ignored, having your ideas stolen. What do you say to those people? And have you ever felt afraid to use your voice? Well, I've never felt afraid to use my voice. I think what is helpful is if we are in a group where we have what you know is referred to sometimes as critical mass. I tell the story when I did my legislation on women on corporate boards. Uh, my goal is to have women at, as a, a substantial number on a board, uh, a critical mass. Because if you have a board of 10 people and there's one woman, she's expected to get the coffee. If you have a board and there are two women, they fight between themselves as to who's going to get the coffee. If you have three women or more, they look at the men, they say, get your own damn coffee. And that's the kind of empowerment I think that is very, very helpful and necessary because, uh, you know, it's easy for men to try to marginalize and uh, uh, our responses. I know one of the things that drives me the craziest is we'll be in a meeting and I'll make a suggestion that's been thought out. I've been thinking about it. I'm one of the older members now in the, the legislature. And I get told, oh, yeah, yeah, that's interesting. And two speakers later, a man makes the very same suggestion. And they say, what a great idea. And I pipe up and I say, what am I, chop liver? And, and you know, we now have a woman pro tem. And it's very interesting to watch how she handles that dynamic. What she has done on more than one occasion is she said, you know, Hannah Best suggested that a a few minutes ago, and I think that's a great idea she came up with. So basically, it forces the men to recognize that not only do we have a seat at the table, but we offer, and in many instances, at least as much, if not more. And frankly, when you take a look at who's running the world today, we can't do any worse. 
I tell people my seven-year-old granddaughter could probably do a better job running this country today than what we've got uh, in the White House right now. I make no bones about it. Why do we hold ourselves to a, such a higher standard? I mean, take a look at the level of mediocrity that we see in so many of our male counterparts. You know, back in the earlier days of the women's movement, there were a couple expressions that I uh, remember quite vividly. One, one was that women will have achieved equality when we don't have to be twice as good to get half as far. And the other one is that we will achieve equality when a mediocre woman can get as far as a mediocre man. And the, <laughs> and the point is that we really do have to be better and do better. But when we're in a group where we have women who are leading, women who are participating, there is, a, a generally speaking, a greater understanding, appreciation, and support group there. And that's why it's important that we see more women on the bench. We see more women as presiding judges. We see more women in leadership positions. We see women running the White House, running the State House. Uh, we really do have a lot to offer. And I think that the effort to keep us down, if you will, is part of a patriarchy that is as old as Adam and Eve. So you've talked a little bit about women working together and, and sort of the notion of there's power in numbers. How do you sort of suggest that women, you know, for lack of sort of a more delicate way to say it, sort of get over themselves and work more collaboratively and more positively together. So one of the things that I have been doing up in Sacramento, I didn't start it, but I have been uh, keeping the fire going, if you will, is we do a, a what we call Girlfriends Night. One day a week, I will set up like an open table at a restaurant, send the word out to all of the women members that tonight you know, Senator Jackson is having an open table at restaurant X. And what I've discovered in this process is when we sit down together as women and start talking about our lives and our life experiences, whether it's boyfriends or husbands or children or caring for our elderly aging parents or legislation where we've hit a stone wall because of some uh, some fellow who uh, wants to steal the idea for himself, we, what we discover is we have a lot in common. We have shared experiences, which create a sisterhood. Uh, and that has been my experience, that, that it strengthens our relationships because we have, uh, in many instances, suffered from the same experiences and indignities and the same joys. Uh, we had a, a, a meeting uh, about a year ago, I'll never forget, there were about 10 of us having dinner. And uh, one of our younger members announced that she uh, was going to have triplets. And somebody took a picture uh, of all of us in the room at that moment. And each of us had a different expression um, <laughs> that the men in the room would never have gotten. But I think I, I did this and somebody else put their head on, their, on the table. And, and it was something that gave us all a joyful laugh because we knew what this poor woman was about to go through. And of course, have all been very supportive of her. But it's that kind of common shared experience where we realize that we really have more in common together. And we will get farther individually if we work more effectively together. Senator Jackson, so speaking of this collaboration amongst women, what do you think about mentorship? And, and can you share with us whether you have a mentor, whether you've served as a mentor, and, and what role that can play in maybe fostering this collaboration amongst women? 
Oh, I think mentorships are critically important because what happens, you know, you mentioned that we're, we're raised to think of ourselves as little red riding hood. We're not supposed to ask questions. We're not supposed to outshine our male counterparts. I remember as a girl, I was a tennis player. I was a good tennis player. And a boy in high school would ask me to go play tennis with him. And I'd beat the pants off of them. And I'd come <laughs> home and my mother would say, did you let him win? I'd say, why would I do that? I've worked hard to be a good tennis player. I'm supposed to let him win just because he's a boy? Never made any sense to me. If he was better than I was, then it'd win, or maybe it'd win. But but I think what's important is that we learn from each other. We all, generally speaking, go through very similar experiences, sexual harassment in the workforce, for example, or being marginalized in the workplace. I can't tell you how many times when I started practicing law, I'd be negotiating with a male uh, counterpart and he'd start calling me honey. Listen, honey, and I had to say to him, I'm not your honey. And if you call me honey again, I'll just see you in court. I mean, you just have to be assertive. But then sometimes you need to check to make sure you're handling this the right way, or maybe that the observations, some guy kind of looking you up and down one time too many, you can ask another woman, is that appropriate? I mean, am I being a little bit paranoid about this? So that you get some input and some reinforcement and some confirmation. Uh, I think those are all important quality. So I do mentor. Uh, I have been mentored. I've been very uh, lucky my whole life. I come from a family of very strong, accomplished women way back when women really didn't go to college. I had a a great aunt who was uh, the first woman ever to hold an endowed chair at a university in Boston, Massachusetts, which is where I'm from. Uh, My tennis coach was a woman named Hazel Whiteman, who donated the Whiteman Cup to tennis, uh, one of the first women ever to graduate from the University of California back in 1909 or 1912. And she would tell stories about how, I think there were three women at the University of California in in Berkeley and uh, the men didn't want them there. So they would push them off the sidewalks into the street. And of course, in those days there were horses horses and all, and you can imagine what they were uh, relegated to stepping into. It was made very clear that they really weren't wanted there. And she overcame all of this to become one of the greatest tennis champions of all time and proceeded to also have five children as well and nurse them in between matches. And this was my tennis coach and someone who never said never who never gave up and who would never take no for an answer. Having that kind of inspiration, I think, is really, really helpful. It's not required, but boy, it's helpful. Sticking a little bit to the theme of of women working together and power in numbers, what are your thoughts about how we can more effectively leverage women in getting more women elected to political offices? Or if you take it out of the political realm, an analogous question would be, how can women best support one another in positions of influence to not only foster their success, but the success of other women coming behind them? Well, sure. I mean, that's part of the reason that I think that having women on corporate boards is so important. We we are very much influenced by our circles, our, our circles of contacts and friends. And women tend to, to know other women who've been successful or who could be successful. If you have women on a board of a corporate of a big corporation and there's an opening in a management position, I say I know a terrific woman that would qualify for this. I mean, a lot of what happens in this world is not necessarily what you know, but who you know. And when we expand our circle uh, of contacts and connections, 
months, we're going to know more women and women who are eminently qualified to serve on boards or to serve in upper management or to become judges. I mean, I have mentored other women from the time I started practicing law. I had a young woman who was thinking of going to law school, but she had taken a, a slight detour and had three or four kids and asked if she could come in and, and work with me and, and see what it was like to practice law. Uh, she's now the district attorney of Santa Barbara County, for example, and doing great work on law enforcement education reform, uh, has really been a tremendous role model herself for others. So it's a way of paying it forward or paying it back, depending upon your point of view. But I think it's important, again, that when we create these connections, Women Lawyers Association of Los Angeles, I was a member back in 1970-something or other. I was brought into that group by Sheila Kuehl. Many of you know Sheila Kuehl. She's now- I was going to ask you about her as a mentor. Would you consider her to be a mentor? No question, Sheila was a mentor when I first came to Los Angeles, was a mentor helping me, inspiring me to run for the state assembly. You know, I was very much involved and excited about her California Women Lawyers and uh, let's see, what is it? The um, Women's Law Center. Originally, it was Southern California. She and Abby Liebman started it again uh, because I knew, knew Sheila. My husband and I were enthusiastic to support them. She was supportive of my work. I was supportive of her work. That's part of how this works. When you take a look at the quote unquote good old boys network, that's what we're looking at. And I don't see any reason that we can't have, I don't want to call it a good old girls network, but you know, an opportunity to get to know other women, to to feel comfortable, to recognize our strengths, to help improve each other's strengths, the confidence and what have you. And then the sky's the limit. Along those lines, you mentioned your husband, and I, and I know he's an avid basketball fan, as am I, and I also know that you were a competitive tennis player. Title IX is something that I think was important to many people because it provided women with an equal opportunity to participate in sports in college and high school. I would like to talk to you about Title IX, but before we get into the kind of nuts and bolts of the legal part, what about tennis as a vehicle for something that builds your self-esteem or, or your confidence? Do you think that playing tennis competitively had any role in that? Oh, without question. So my interest in tennis came uh, actually because back when I was a little girl, I wasn't allowed to play Little League. Little League was for boys only. So at the age of seven, I went down to the Little League uh, field at the Memorial School in Newton, Massachusetts. I remember it like it was yesterday. Had my my. Uh, ball and glove tucked in my jacket and I had my bat on the front of my bike and I went down I wanted to sign up to try out for Little League because I was the best guy on the team and I was told no girls cannot play Little League and I thought well that's ridiculous I'm the best how, how is that possible so uh, after being told several times I finally got the message I watched I watched the ball go between the legs of these little boys who couldn't find their way out of a paper bag. And I then I rode my bike home and I was so angry and upset. And my parents said to me, well, you know, in America, uh, there's a way to let people know when you're not happy about something. Today, we call it redressing grievances, but I'm sure at seven, I never would have understood what they were saying. And we prepared a petition and we went around the neighborhood and I asked people to sign it so that girls could play Little League. And some of them did. And some of them patted me on the head and say, oh, isn't that sweet little girl? I, why don't you go play? with your dolls. So when I tell this story, I also remember the fact that uh, for Halloween at trick or treat time, I remembered who those people were and um, uh, sent off my uh, petition to the Little League Association and I never heard back from them. 
They never wait. Am I to understand that you remembered them for the tricks at Halloween? Those houses that didn't sign your petition? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. (laughs) No, they weren't major, but you know, you'd leave like a rotten apple on their front door or something, just so I could feel empowered to respond to that level of rejection. I never broke. I never broke a window. I swear. but uh, Probably had good aim, though. I never tried it on that. But the answer is, yeah, I could throw. I could heave a baseball a long way. I could, I could, uh, you know, hit a ball beautifully. Uh, but then, of course, as you get older and the boys are now six feet tall and you aren't, uh, you know, you can't hit it as far. But that doesn't mean that we can't poke the ball between shortstop and third base or, you know, in the outfield where the outfielders aren't playing. I mean, there are different ways to play every game. And there are different ways to play at life. And we bring that different perspective. We can be more wily. We're more thoughtful. When it comes to police officers, you know, the number of women officers involved in violent confrontations is significantly less than men. Sure, we can't pick up a 200-pound perpetrator, but we can figure out how not to make him a perpetrator in the first place. I mean, these are things that we bring to that table. So being an athlete was always very important to me. And when I couldn't play baseball, my parents thought, well, you know, tennis is a sport that is more acceptable for girls although there were no college scholarships to speak of at the time for girls athletes. And that's why Title IX was so important. So I took up tennis. The beauty of tennis is you don't have to rely. You can't rely on anybody else. You can't blame anybody else if you mess up. It's all on you. So you get the glory when there's glory and you have to take responsibility when you don't do so well. And I think that those are some of life's fundamental lessons that women shouldn't be afraid to try. You know, what's the worst that can happen? We're not even supposed to try. Uh, Women are assumed that they're going to fail, but we're not going to fail. And if we do fail, we aren't really failing. We pick ourselves up and we get back right, you know, get right back up in the race. (laughs) Along the lines of Title IX, I know recently, Senator Jackson, that you co-sponsored legislation with, I think, uh, Kevin DeLeon uh, regarding how sex harassment and um, abuse is being reported and litigated in college campuses. Tell me what motivated you to get involved in that and how you think it can change um, how those things are investigated on college campuses. Well, those are two separate issues. Within our pro tem, Kevin DeLeon, we wrote the legislation that is somewhat referred to as yes means yes, affirmative consent on college campuses. It isn't that she didn't say no. It's you have to get to yes, a very clear indication that both parties understand what is going on and agree to that sexual contact. Very important legislation now required in all of our college campuses as part of the orientation so that there's a greater understanding of what can be expected and what is appropriate in those relationships. When it comes to Title IX, uh, Title IX was viewed as, as you mentioned earlier, and did in fact give women an opportunity to be more competitive uh, in sports. Uh, and in sciences, actually, to make those uh, avenues more available to women. But Title IX also has, as an element, the ability for women to have an equal educational experience. And women who are subjected to sexual assault or harassment or violence on a college campus obviously are not going to have that same discrimination-free environment. And so Title IX is, in fact, a legitimate vehicle to reach address those kinds of inappropriate and unacceptable behaviors on college campuses. So uh, there are um, 
rules that uh, were being promulgated uh, by the Obama administration called a Dear Colleague Letter, which was designed to set out protocols to follow when a victim, and primarily women, but also our LGBTQ students being subjected to sexual assault on campus or by classmates and so forth, uh, this would have set up a protocol, uh, very um, victim-oriented insofar as making sure that victims of these assaults had uh, appropriate counseling and accommodations made to them. So, for example, if a, a young woman is the victim of a rape or a violent sexual assault by uh, someone with whom she shares a dorm, that that perpetrator would be reassigned to another dorm so that the victim didn't have to see him day in and day out or a different class. Um, what had happened, though, is because our universities, frankly, are not um, litigation-based and they're not lawyers, uh, generally speaking, uh, there was some confusion as to what would be the best way to pursue these kinds of claims on our college campuses. And there was some argument, although kind of outlier type situations, where the process was not fair to both parties. Frequently, uh, up until recently, the, the process has not been at all fair to the victim. Victim has been shamed. We know a number of cases particularly famous cases with athletes where more than one woman accused, has accused that athlete of rape um, and uh, has ultimately ended up leaving school because she's been the, become the accused. Uh, so a way to try to balance this is something that we have tried to do with this Dear Colleague letter uh, that came out of the Obama administration. Unfortunately, with the current administration and Betsy DeVos, uh, uh, running the, the, the educational aspects of uh, policy, uh, we have seen this horrific uh, change that is going to basically wipe out any possibility that women and our LGBTQ community are going to be able to have those accommodations made for them in their college and higher education experience. It's, it is shameful, uh, it is outrageous, and hopefully uh, with this administration changing, those rules will change. But in the interim, I have legislation moving through the, uh, now I think the bill is in the assembly, that is going to set up a fair process, recognizing that these are in in most instances, legitimate claims of assault, of sexual violence, and that we need to set up an appropriate mechanism by which uh, we can have, through the administrative process, uh, ways to um, to address the uh, alleged perpetrator and to hold them uh, responsible, again, in the educational context, uh, if in fact uh, it's determined by a preponderance of the evidence that the event occurred. Again, it's not a criminal proceeding. Frankly, the way DeVos has set this up, you probably have a greater chance of getting a conviction in a criminal case than having some kind of administrative response in a college case, which I think is just nothing short of a tragedy, given that we know that one in four women will be the victim of some kind of sexual assault during her college experience. I wanted to just say, wow, uh, with regard to that statistic. Let me pivot a little bit, and I'm going to ask you two seemingly similar questions that may or Thank may you. not elicit different answers. And the first question is, what are your thoughts about whether a woman could be elected to the office of governor in California? So that's question number one. And related question number two is, what are your thoughts about whether a woman could be elected to be president of the United States? 
Well, could and should, of course, are two different questions. I think, yes, a woman could become governor of California. We have a number of women in the pipeline uh, who have demonstrated tremendous competence, tremendous skills. And I think particularly with this younger generation, to be honest with you, uh, which is a lot more liberal in its social thinking. You know, you think about the LGBTQ community. It wasn't that long ago that the state of California passed an initiative prohibiting same-sex marriage. You talk to most younger voters today, they think you're crazy. How could that, why, who cares? I mean, and I think that today as well, uh, the majority of young people and probably the majority of voters in general, I'd love to give them that opportunity uh, to elect a woman to be uh, governor of California. And yes, I do think when it comes to the presidency, certainly the bar right now, in my opinion, could not be much lower. And I know that there have been women uh, who have thought of running, who I think would be outstanding candidates, perhaps in a different year. Perhaps going forward, we'll see more women who have accomplishments, who have been able to demonstrate their competency, their intellect, their knowledge of the subject. You know, we did have an eminently qualified woman in 2016, in fact, arguably more qualified than most of the men who run and become president in the last hundred years, having been the first lady of this country, having been a United United States Senator, having been the Secretary of State. I mean, can you think of someone who's run for president uh, in the last hundred years with those qualifications? I, I think not. But gender still is, in some instances, a factor, but I think less and less and less as we see women emerging. We see women on the bench. You know, one of my favorite quotes is Ruth Bader Ginsburg being asked, when will women have achieved equality? And she says, when there are nine. And my goodness, when you think about it, we've had nine men on the Supreme Court for decades. Uh, What would happen if we had nine women? I think that would be fascinating. We would see some pretty outstanding decision-making. But even if we aren't nine, uh, we now have some uh, extraordinary women who are sitting on the Supreme Court. And I think people are getting more and more used to it, more and more comfortable with it. And women in particular should be rallying around that notion more and more because we are clearly qualified. We have greater emotional intelligence. We are more collaborative. Uh, We are more, I think, intuitive. Uh, We bring to that table whether it's the judicial process, the legislative process, the executive process, uh, or any nonprofits, any world that we live in, we bring qualities to the table that we desperately need in today's world. Speaking of the difference in generations, as you said, uh, one thing that I've noticed is that the younger generation also is more willing to speak out about women's rights and women's issues, whereas maybe women from um, generations that are a little above my own, tend to adopt this view of maybe just go along to get along. And I'm wondering, as your term is drawing to a close, what are some of the lessons you've learned? Have you changed your opinion on how you participate in some of these discussions or use your voice along those lines? Is there anything that you've learned that you wish you could have told your younger self as you were starting off in state politics? Well, the first thing I would have told my younger self is to take better care of my younger self. Uh, you know, we can't, you can't work 24 hours a day, seven days a week. You need some time for yourself. And frankly, I didn't take enough time and I don't know whether it had any impact, but I'm a, a breast cancer survivor. Back in 2006, two years after I finished my term, I was diagnosed with the BRCA1 breast cancer gene and in fact had breast cancer. 
and realized at that point in time, you know, there's just, you, you can't push yourself farther than your body is willing to let you. And I think we as women uh, do push ourselves too much. We need to take some time for ourselves. Um, again, I don't know whether it would have made a difference, but uh, I do think, and I try to now, although it's hard because, you know, we are so uh, committed to our work. And if we are also caring for our families, we're committed to our families. We're trying to have it all. And you can't, you just can't, you have to make some choices. And I wish that I had worked a little bit less and taken a little better care of myself. I tried to be a good mom. I tried to be a good spouse, a good wife. I tried to do the best I could at my job, but I forgot a little bit too much uh, on what it was going to take to keep me healthy so that I could um, go on and have a little better balance in my life. Uh, but that being said, I think, you know, to say I was a little more brash, yeah, it's probably true. A little more impatient. Uh, you know, it's not an accident that the world changes kind of slowly. I tend to be a little impatient. I don't suffer fools very well. And uh, I think it's important to be a little bit more compassionate. The world will change if we work hard at it, but maybe not at the speed that we want it to go. So I think those might be things that I learned. I also learned that the best measure of one's competence is demonstrating it through success in the legislation that you do, for example. I chair the Senate Judiciary Committee. I try to hear out all of the legislators who are bringing bills to my committee, what it is they're looking for. Maybe I can help them get there. You know, the old rule, though, you can't put lipstick on a pig. You can't put lipstick on a pig. But what's happened is that the more I have tried to engage and to interact with people and listen carefully and gain their respect, you can get away with a lot more when people really believe because you are in earnest trying to be helpful. So being a little less dismissive, perhaps, sometimes it's hard not to roll your eyes, but recognizing that, you know, most of us are good people or we mean well. I'm reminded, I used to say that all the time about my mother, you know, they, they, mothers drive you crazy, but they mean well. And so I think that's an element that's important to bring into the equation as well. So those are things that I might do differently, but I wouldn't stop pushing for what I think is right. And I think that that really uh, has been what's motivated me. I think it's been part of the success I've had, whether it's on uh, equal pay. You know, when we got this equal pay bill passed, uh, I, I had been working on this issue since my years on the State Commission on the Status of Women, back when Jerry Brown the first, you know, had jet black hair and Linda Ronstead on his, uh, uh, on his arm. See, a lot of these younger lawyers want to know who Linda Ronstead is, but it's okay. But I know who she is. Beautiful voice. Great uh, stylist. And was very much a number. You know, she and Jerry were this hot number in the legislature. And I, he appointed me to the State Commission on the Status of Women. And when I got there back in 1979, women were making 57 cents every dollar a man was making. And I thought, well, why is that? I mean, why are we making less doing the same or substantially similar work? So working on this issue was something I had been working on for a long time. So when I got this bill passed in 2015, it passed almost overwhelmingly. It was almost a unanimous vote after 35 years of pushing and plugging away at this. There were two members of the assembly who didn't vote for it. They thought that I had bullied the Chamber of Commerce into actually supporting the bill. Uh, which ultimately they did. But they did, I believe, because the person I was working with there is a woman who is a very qualified, very competent lobbyist, who I'm sure was not being paid the same as her male counterparts. Now, she would never admit it, 
being a good lobbyist, but I did get a nice smile. So that was sort of affirmation that we were kind of on the same page. And she represented her client well, and I appreciated that. And we got to the point where we could all agree on equal pay for substantially similar work. And there we are. And so that has now become the template. We passed that bill. Governor Brown did a big signing of the bill at the uh, Rosie the Riveter Museum in Richmond, California. It was a great event. A lot of uh, the, the staff in the legislature brought their daughters to this event. It was really quite a momentous occasion. 43 other states now have used that legislation as the template for their own equal pay bills in their own states. So I'm really proud of that. But that's just one area where I fought hard. That took 35 years. Uh, Women on corporate boards, another area where we really need women both, you know, in the grassroots up and from the top down, making policies that are more reflective of the fact that women are in the workforce today more than ever before. And women are graduating college at greater numbers than our male counterparts. Women are graduating professional schools. I think we are now more law students and I believe more medical students than our male counterparts. So we should be out there in the workforce being paid equally and fairly for the work we do. And it shouldn't be based on gender. And that's what this legislation did. And of course, if we're in the workforce and we're young women, we need to procreate the species We don't want it to end. And so how do we then accommodate the needs of younger women who are going to have children and also are professional? There should not have to be a choice. It's either this or that. We should be able, like many other countries in the world, to accommodate uh, having uh, young children, both men and women. So I've done legislation called New Parent Leave that allows new parents to take 12 weeks off during the first year of a child's life to bond with their newborns. We know it reduces postpartum depression in women by a third. That's huge. We know that it's healthier for the infant because up until an infant is six months old, they don't develop the protections, the immunities. And if we send them off to daycare, you know, what happens in daycare can be very problematic. And for new dads, you know, I want dad to have to get up at two o'clock and do that two o'clock feeding and change those diapers. You know, babies are not all polished and cooing and ready for bed uh, when daddy gets home from work like it used to be in the 50s. You know, father knows best and leave it to beaver. I don't think we ever lived in that world, but it certainly isn't the world we live in today. And so we have to keep persisting. We have to make sure that we have equal opportunity. And when we do, the doors open, the gates open and people realize, yeah, why shouldn't a woman be president of the United States? If she's qualified, why not? But then we have to make sure we don't hold women to a higher and different standard. It creates that imbalanced world and one that is totally without equity or fairness. That's outstanding work on those bills. And I know we talked about Title IX. We talked about uh, Family Medical Leave Act. Uh, we talked about your work in uh, all these different areas. As you're terming out this year, you're a mom, you're a wife, you're a grandmother, you're a former athlete. What are you most proud of as you're, as you're finishing your last year as state senator? Well, let's see. You know, I'm most proud of my family. Uh, My husband's a retired judge, uh, still very active in criminal justice reform, very passionate about it. Uh, I have a marvelous daughter who's also a lawyer, balancing having two little ones, seven and four. Um, 
and uh, trying to be a good mom and still be good at her work and taking pride in her profession. But as far as my professional, my, my greatest accomplishments, you know, it's really hard to say because I'm very proud that I have, I believe, uh, maintained uh, my focus, my integrity, my sense of fairness, my sense of justice, my sense of equity and equality uh, that I think have been a thread throughout my life. Um, I've always rooted for the little guy. I've always tried to, uh, to give people uh, a hand up when I've been able to. Uh, I've always spoken out for people who can't speak for themselves. I've always demanded that the best person be able to play Little League, whether they're male or female or you know, just whoever they are or think they are. I've always tried to live a compassionate life and, and to empathize with people, while at the same time expecting a great deal from people. We have goodness in us and we have evil in us. I think that we can be led astray through fear and ignorance. But when we call upon our higher selves to be the best that we can be and to be good stewards of the land and good friends and neighbors and community members and family members, uh, there is much that we can accomplish. And I like to think that that's sort of uh, been my legacy and, and been the person that I have tried to be throughout my whole life, whether it's in my professional career or my personal life or just making sure that that, uh, you know, I try to treat the, the, the planet, our Mother Earth, with the respect that she deserves, because if we don't, frankly, she's going to come back at us big time, and we are going to regret that. I think we have lessons to teach to the next generation, responsibilities to them, and responsibilities to live a good life that we're proud of. You are transitioning away from the legislature into your next phase of your both personal life and professional life. Based upon what I know about you and the time that you have so graciously given to us over the last hour, it is hard for me to believe that you won't continue to channel that passion, that compassion, that tenacity, the protection of the environment, women, the disadvantaged people of color, etc., into something else or, or some other things. And so I think Judge Mario and I are so eager to see what you do next. We talked a little bit about the fact that you have plans to write a memoir, and I think I can speak for Judge Mario and say, we're ready, we'll read it, we'll buy it, we'll sell it, but it really will be wonderful to see what you do in your next phase of life. And we are so grateful for the time that you have given to us today and wish you nothing but luck satisfaction and happiness. Well, it's been my pleasure to be with you and I wish the best of luck to everyone who is uh, out there practicing law on the bench. Uh, just uh, be the best that you can be. And remember, as I tell family, whenever they're willing to listen, failure is that which happens only if you don't try. Keep enjoying, find that joy in life and be proud of the work you do. And I'm Delighted that I've been able to share this time and hopefully a, a few helpful thoughts to those of you listening. And I wish you all the best of luck and a happy future. And I want to see more women running for office, more women uh, deciding key issues on the bench, and just a better sense of fairness for everyone in this country. We all deserve it. And I think uh, if we work hard, we'll achieve it. Thank you. Thank you, Senator Jackson. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this discussion. Please subscribe to receive future episodes and please share with colleagues and loved ones. You can learn more about this series at LACPA.org slash podcasts. Thank you to the planning committee, the Honorable Nicole Bershon, 
the Honorable Michelle Williams Court, Julie Gerchik, a partner at Glazer Weil LLP, the Honorable Samantha Jessner, the Honorable Serena Murillo, the Honorable Elizabeth White, and the Honorable Amy Yerke. We are grateful to Cecilia Gomez and Tom Walsh from LACBA for their hard work supporting the speaker series and to Lynn Florin for producing the podcast. <laughs>